This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fambergas. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, as always, Veritas member, for making Veritas possible. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to all segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. And remember, subscribe not because you want to believe, but because you want to know. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, USB drives with all our seasons and bonus material, and everything else we have to offer. And like us on Facebook, and visit the page frequently. We have Samantha, one of our associates, who updates that page every day, and includes news that you won't find in the mainstream media. And to get in touch with us, for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower. There's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Could what we believe about mankind's creation be wrong? Are we alone in the universe? Are there other civilizations out in the universe that could be like us? Did they come to visit us? Or are they trying to visit us? Is there a God? What was the purpose of the pyramids and all the magnificent megalithic structures around the world that in the 21st century we have not been able to replicate after thousands of years? 
we have heard the theory of how a more advanced race mixed their DNA with the Homo erectus to create the Homo sapiens to mine gold. What is the sole purpose of many megalithic structures in the Middle East, Africa, Europe, Asia, and the Americas? Were built as washboards to collect gold from running water and had nothing to do with what you and I thought until now? These are some of the questions that tonight's special guest has pondered all his life. He wants to know everything. This is the way his mind works. Sounds like me. And to answer these and many more questions, Marshall Klarfeld is coming up next, right now on Veritas. Upon graduating from Caltech in 1951, Marshall Klarfeld began a 30-year career with Wallace J.S. Johnson's company, Upright Inc. In 1963, Marshall's boss Wallace Johnson was elected mayor of Berkeley, California. Sharing Johnson's business and political philosophies, Clarfield became his aide, the camp. This partnership produced two national political campaigns, including the New Hampshire presidential primary election of 1976. In spite of all this excitement throughout his life, the lingering questions about man's origins that Marshall pursued while an undergraduate at Caltech still haunted him. He is the author of the book titled Adam, the Missing Link, which blows the lid off a closely held package of historical and scientific facts proving that the human race was created by the alien genetic engineering technology nearly a quarter of a million years ago. In 2012, Marshall discovered a new equatorial timeline that appears to date the construction of the Giza pyramids, Easter Island statues, and the Nazca lines to over 100,000 years ago. He has also discovered a new theory that branch these structures as creations of the space-age civilization called the Anunnaki. His new book is titled The Anunnaki Were Here, A Quantum Leap in Archaeology. And to learn more about Marshall Klarfeld and his work, visit his website at adamthemissinglink.com, which is also linked in our website. And directly from Southern California, I would like to welcome Marshall Klarfeld to Veritas. Hello, Mr. Klarfeld, and welcome. How are you? Just fine, Mel. Thank you for that intro. That was uh, quite well done. I appreciate it on your program. Thank you. Thank you for being here. A few weeks ago, you contacted me. May I call you Marshall, by the way? Absolutely, Mel. Thank you. A few weeks ago, you approached me and uh, you sent me your book. You sent me a video. And I have to say, I found a lot of commonalities between you and I. You, you also share the same thing. You have an overdeveloped sense of wonder, and you always want to find the truth regardless. This is going to be such an exciting show, folks. I'm always looking at, I'm questioning things, who created the pyramids, but more than who, I always want to know why. And Marshall has a theory that really shook me because it makes a lot of sense. And he'll tell us more, but Marshall, tell us a little bit more about you. And you had a story when you were about 10 years old, your father took you to a wealthy friend's estate and take it from there. Yes, uh, his name was Louis Pooney. He was the maitre d' at the famous Copley Plaza in Boston, a very good chum of my father's. And we went up to this estate of his in New Hampshire, and he was very proud of a swimming pool he had just built. Hadn't quite finished it. All the plumbing was exposed. And 
as I found out, my mind always wants to know how things work. And I looked at his spaghetti nightmare of plumbing, and I figured out it wouldn't work. And I told him, I said, uh, Mr. Pooney, uh, that's not going to work. And he was quite astounded that this 10-year-old kid could look at something and tell him that he was wrong. After he examined it closely, he realized that I was right, that he had made mistakes in, in hooking things up. And, um, and from that point forward, I came to the realization, Mel, that um, my mind is, is very inquisitive and it wants to know how things work and it has this ability to look at things and analyze them uh, on its own. I, I really don't have a control over that. That just happens. And that story has stuck with me for over the centuries here. <laughs> and, um, it all started, I guess, um, back when I first uh, went to school at Caltech. Very interesting time framing on that, Mel. I entered Caltech in the late summer of 1947 as a freshman. And, of course, as we all know, uh, in the, that same summer, the incident at Roswell occurred, and UFO became a terminology in our um, lexicon. So what I really am getting to at this point is that uh, the buzzword around campus at that time was UFO, aliens, and spacecraft, and I became very interested in the subject, and uh, as an undergraduate, I had uh, two extraordinary teachers, Mel. I was blessed, just the timing of it. My uh, physics professor was uh, Richard Feynman, and my chemistry professor was Linus Pauling. These two gentlemen later on uh, became famous and got Nobel laureate uh, prizes, but I had a, this uh, excellent uh, opportunity to uh, get very close to these two gentlemen as they were my teachers. And um, in case your audience is interested, at that time in 1947, Caltech took in only 190 freshmen. There were probably over 10,000 applicants, and I still to this day am amazed that they chose me because I graduated from St. Petersburg, Florida High School, which was not on the list of those uh, schools that you were trained in to get to some prestigious in institution like Caltech. But because there was only 190 of us uh, as a freshman class, we were really fortunate to have this close relationship with Pauling and with Feynman. And as I point out in my original book, Adam, the Missing Link, um, I was a brazen teenager and, and on a one-on-one -on -one conversation with uh, uh, Richard Feynman, I asked him, since it was so popular, Dr. Feynman, do you believe in UFOs? <laughs> you, did, you actually asked him that? Yes, I asked. I, uh, I was the social chairman of our house, and uh, we invited the professors to dinner, and I got him at the fireplace after dinner on a one-on-one, -on -one, and my mind was burning up with stuff I was reading in the Bible and, of course, the UFO thing, and I just said, well, geez, here's a guy I should know. And I asked him that, and here's the answer he gave me, which I think you'll find very interesting, Mel. He said, Clarfeld, I believe in the law of probability. He says of the billions and billions of stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way, and the billions and billions of galaxies in the universe, the law of probability tells us that there are 10,000 solar systems exactly like ours. He says, if any of those older ones, since we were the younger star, survive their space age, they could have visited us. Yes, I believe in UFOs. Now, I take that exact quote and I publish it in my first book because I thought it was an astounding answer for a young uh, undergraduate to get from his uh, future Nobel laureate professor. 
And if you analyze what he said, the most important part of it was not that we're the youngest star and that they're all the other solar system 10,000 that are like us are older than we are, therefore more advanced. He said, if they survive their space age, Mel, and it took me about 60 years to figure that one out. And I finally came to realize that every civilization that progresses towards space age exploration is faced with the uh, rocketry necessary to get off the planet, but also the atomic bombs that go on top of these rockets. And the uh, chances of the civilization obliterating itself are, are quite real. And that's what he was referring to, which is if they survive their space age. I wish that uh, had been my professor because I had good professors in, in college, but uh, most of them, of course, not that they were closed-minded, but they they were following the curriculum. And usually when you ask that question, they basically tell you that, uh, you know, science has not proven it. But, you know, we'll look up at the stars and we know there are billions of stars, which means there are probably trillions of planets. And if there's life here, and I love what he said, the law of probability. If we have life here, then the probability that there's life elsewhere then must be true. But you also have surrounded with some people, uh, Neil Freer, one of them, the late Zachariah Sitchin. So it seems to me that you were probably a disciple of Zachariah Sitchin. Zachariah and Sitchin, I discovered him in the early 1990s. And as I was researching on my own, trying to find a good, good formula or, or theory that would solve the problems that I was struggling with. Yeah. And I started reading, uh, of course, The Twelfth Planet first, and then I read everything he wrote. And uh, one day I got on the phone, I called him up, and we started a, a conversation that lasted for an hour. And from then forward, we had about a 10-year relationship where I was... Uh, the student, he was the teacher. Whenever I had a question, I'd call him up and ask him, and he'd give me an answer, or I'd write him. And uh, he was, at that time, writing on a, I think, a Corona typewriter. I have many letters in my file that are written with mistakes in the typing and erasures. It's, it's really quite quaint the way he must have written all his books that way, which I think I find phenomenal since I, I did most of mine on the computer. But yes, we had a relationship, and Neil Freer and I became friends. And he wrote some interesting books that I read, and since then we've had an ongoing relationship. But as far as I became a disciple of Zacharias because his theory made sense to me, Mel. I, I did much research before I wrote my first book, and I um, coordinated it with his books, and I came to the conclusion that the uh, gigantic database that he was basing his information on, which was the cuneiform tablets and the cylinder seals from the Sumerian civilization, was, were telling a story that eventually lots of those stories ended up in the Bible. Uh, I, I was a biblical student before I went to Caltech, and what really got me uh, absolutely intrigued was that the stories that I found in the Bible were so scientifically based that I wondered, how did these guys 5,000 years ago know all this information? You know, where did these, uh, the fourth day, the greater light of the day, and the lesser light of the night? We were taught at Caltech that uh, solar systems are born by accumulation of gases spinning around, and then finally the planets form through a collection of materials. And late in this period, if, if a solar system is to be successful like ours is, the sun ignites, finally, it's, but it's late in the process. 
And I looked at the six-day creation that was, story that was in the Bible, Genesis, and I said, you know, it says on the fourth day, God created the greater light of the day and the lesser light of the night, which was the sun and the moon. Well, that fit with what I was being taught about solar formations. And I said, you know, how'd they know that? <laughs> Who wrote that story? And then when I found Zechariah, it, it kind of all fell into place, and I'm sure you've read his material as I have and came to the same conclusion. And since he's no longer with us, um, I am, I've am i made myself his disciple. I'm out there uh, fighting all the good fights for him and with him and advancing as best I can on the uh, basic theories that he formulated so that we can uh, go forward and get to his uh, goal, which is, I think, all of our goals is to get disclosure. You, you seem to be carrying uh, his torch, but it was uh, Neil Freer who introduced me to Zachariah. As you know, later in life, he was more, yeah, he wasn't granting that many interviews, but he actually allowed me to interview him. And I guess I'm very privileged to say that it was his last interview. Yes, I heard that, Mel. I went to your archives and I was delighted that, that you were able to uh, achieve that because Frankly, in some of my conversations with him, and I think you perhaps noticed that too, he wasn't very verbose about mm -hmm. to people. Um, I've heard him interviewed on Coast to Coast, and, and Nori would ask him a question. He'd say, yes, no, or read yeah. my book. <laughs> you know, those were his stock answers. That's right. That's right. You did a beautiful job with him. You got him to come out and to explain things, and I think that's the secret of being a good interviewer. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I do remember him and that Michael Tellinger, who you probably also know, of course, since you refer to the Adams, Adams uh, calendar and so on. All these people who continue looking at Zacharias Sitchin's work, and the reason why I started reading Zacharias Sitchin's work is because, like you probably, I could never get the answers from academia. I could never get the answers at my local library. And it was people who thought, who really thought outside the box. Those, right. were the, those were the people I gravitated towards. And I remember vividly one conversation I had with him when I said, Zachariah, what happens when a civilization accelerates to the point where they progress more technologically than spiritually? But he says, well, the proof is that we probably have had that in the past. Look at the Sana Peninsula. It's almost glass. So in other words, there could have been a nuclear explosion detonation maybe thousands of years ago, and we seem to repeat the same cycle again. So I wonder, Marshall, if we have wiped ourselves out in the past and continue to repeat the same all over again. Well, the story uh, that he uh, so beautifully portrayed in the Lost Book of Enki, I don't know if you've read that one yet, but uh, he tells the, truth, the whole story of the war, and he, he places it in time about 4,024 years ago in the Sinai, and it was a, a war against the two clans, the Enlil clan and the Enki. Enki. Yeah. And uh, that the there were seven atomic weapons that were brought from Nibiru and hidden uh, on the first voyage. They thought they needed them to blast their way through the asteroid belt to get to our surface, but obviously they didn't. And then the, the smart ones said, well, let's bury these. These are trouble. They had had nuclear wars on their planet, on Nibiru. There's a history of that also. But as far as what happened in the Sinai, we have uh, evidence of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible at that period of time. Those cities were nuked. 
as was the space tower that was in the Sinai that Marduk, uh, son of Enki, was trying to. And that's a whole other story that I could go into. But uh, from the database that Zechariah was able to uh, research the information, he tells the story in the Lost Book of Enki of how the war happened. And what happened was that the radiation fallout from the seven bombs that were dropped to stop this uh, war uh, drifted uh, south of Babylon into Samaria and wiped out the Samarian civilization. That our archaeologists and anthropologists have tried to figure out what happened to the Samarians. Well, they got nuked from radiation fallout. Of course, the Anunnaki who were living there were able to blast off and go to the mothership to avoid the poison. And there's all kinds of stories I'm researching right now into the Indus Valley. There was one uh, super uh, female Anunnaki called Ishtar. She was named Ayana in the Samarian, but later became Ishtar, and she's a very famous character. And she was in Uruk, which was the capital of Sumar, and she left, and they, uh, two leaders redivided up the territory that was left. The, the regions were quite damaged, uh, particularly the first region, which was the Garden of Eden, was damaged by the nuclear fallout. And so they had to find new territories, and she was given the Indus Valley area. And I'm finding incredible evidence of her uh, influence over there now in my new research. But these stories that, that I'm alluding to are all in the books that Zachariah was able to uh, piece together. Uh, not only was he uh, an excellent uh, translator of cuneiform, the language written by the Samarians, but he also was a biblical scholar beyond uh, belief. He could take every battle and every war that was described in the Bible and relate it back to what he translated from the cuneiform tablets so that they coincided and made sense. Now, I think you'll have to agree with me on one thing, Mel, that he was a scholar beyond uh, the pale, and he wrote in an extremely scholarly fashion. And some of his books, in fact, maybe all of his books, are very challenging mentally to uh, get the picture of what's going on because he makes so many footnotes and alludes to so many things that your mind starts to spin. So what I told him when I was putting my first book together, I said, you know, I'd like to do a kind of a life magazine uh, book of this story and he said what do you mean Marshall and I said well it's going to be eight and a half by eleven and it's going to have lots of pictures in it Zachariah so that people can look at the pictures and then pick up the words and maybe get the story more easily that way so what I've done in all of my books the three books is I've had uh, lots of, you know hundreds of pictures uh, that show the story and they are worth 10,000 words so I don't have to get very elaborate about explaining what's going on. I just show the evidence, and then I explain how it fits. So that my, my books are more easily, uh, I think, I hope, uh, understandable by the reader than, than Zachariah. Zachariah's books are the authority, but you have to be really, really uh, want to read them, you know, force yourself to read them because they are challenging. Right. You have a lot of images, which, as you say, you know, pictures worth a thousand words, and you can actually relate to what you see here. But let me ask you, Ishtar, Easter, is there a correlation, in your opinion, between Ishtar and Easter? And also, I've heard that Israel, the word Israel, is a combination of Ishtar, Ra, and Elohim. Have you heard that before? Yes, I, I, I heard that, and I think I read it someplace recently, but I... 
want to point out, and I wanted to point out to the person that was telling me that, that originally her name was Ayana. Uh, and, and she became Ishtar when, when they got to the uh, Babylonians. So the original uh, character, or the original personality of the uh, <clears throat> granddaughter of Anu, what, and she was uh, born of the Enlil clan. Her name was Ayana. And so I don't think that when she became Ishtar, which was the, you know, every time uh, her image changed, she got another name. And if you start backwards, say, from the Romans, uh, she was Venus. And in the Greeks, she was Aphrodite. And then you go back to the Babylonians, she was Ishtar. And go back to the uh, Sumerians, uh, she was Ayana. So that I... I find that a stretch. People sometimes like to do things like that, but I, I have not found any research in, in, that would connect her name to uh, either Israel or uh, Easter. And by, by the way, I, one thing that I enjoy about your research is that uh, when you write, it permeates the fact that you're always looking for the the primordial questions, so primordial answers, who we are, where we came from, and what our future can be. And and you even say this, quote, I have always been intrigued by the constant demands of my mind when I encounter something new and interesting. It appears I have been, quote-unquote, gifted or, quote-unquote, cursed with yeah. a mind that insists I understand how things work, why they were created, and what their purpose was. And believe me, I know, because I got in a lot of trouble for asking so many questions. But let's dive into the, the main topic of the Anunnaki We're Here, your new book. Okay. Tell me how you found this correlation between pyramids and washing boards for mining gold. Okay, here's the story, and I think it's kind of interesting because it's kind of like fate took over to get me there. Um, I was invited to be interviewed by the um, ancient aliens folks in uh, Hollywood. By the way, you have, a, you have a landscaper or a gardener behind you there, I guess, right? It'll be gone. You want to wait a second or two till that goes, and we won't have it in the background while well, Let's talk. do that. You know, you're, um, I don't know if you credit that to you or to your mind. Yeah, how does it work? What You want to know how it works. I think I've come to the realization, and I'm a bit older than you are, <laughs> but I have no control over that. It takes over. It does it on its own. There's something uh, wired into my uh uh, napsis is in my brain that says, you know, when I look at something, it immediately says, how does it work? And I start taking it apart. And that, I'm not doing that. I'm not consciously trying to do that. That happens kind of on its own. And I don't know uh, how to, uh, you know, attribute it. No, I, I, I hear you. I hear you, Marshall. I don't know if you know who Colin Andrews is. Do you know who Colin Andrews is, the father of the term crop circles? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I heard an interview on your, your program. Well, Colin was the one who told, we, we were discussing this very topic, and he said, Mel, that's exactly what happens to me. It's almost like a switch that you turn on and you cannot turn off. And the problem is, Marshall, I guess you and I have been lucky that we, we haven't had any losses, but people like Colin, other people that I've talked to that get so addicted to finding the truth, that they lose their wives, they lose their families, they yeah. lose their business. Yeah. And, you know, it's a matter of finding a balance, but sometimes it becomes so addicting yeah. in, in our own DNA that it's difficult to stop it. Right. Well, the uh, subtitle of the first book, Adam, the Missing Link, 
is um, the new history of mankind's creation. Now, as I looked at the various ways that Zachariah and I uh, approached the subject of Adam, and I decided that that subtitle would attract some people's attention because we've all been programmed uh, historically by what's in the Bible. And the biblical stories allude to the creation of Adam, but the uh, the truth of it is uh, revealed by Zechariah's uh, interpretation of how the, the cloning was done. And so uh, I agree with you. It's, it's a mystery um, how the mind works, but in my particular case, I've never had a problem with it. I've always kind of enjoyed it. And uh, the curse part of it that I mentioned is that sometimes my wife gets a little tedious about my research because I ask her things and I don't know the answer and she doesn't know the answer, of course. And she says, you know, why'd you ask that? (laughs) I said, I didn't. I said, my mind asked me that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Your wife probably knows my wife because that's exactly how she behaves with me. But so for those people who, who may be listening to us, and I know the majority of, of our listeners know Sakharaz Sitchin and some of his work, but the Anunnaki come from the planet called Nibiru. And probably they had nuclear weapons there. And at one point they depleted some of their atmosphere and they feared that their civilization was going to die. And that's why they had to deploy themselves elsewhere to be able to find gold, to make it into dust particles, and bring it back to Nibiru and just replenish the, the atmosphere. People who, who struggle with that concept, they can't understand how a planet that goes so far away from our sun, our star, can survive. Well, I say it's just like a spaceship. In other words, there, the, the environment inside a spaceship is controlled. The atmosphere is controlled. And if they have a puncture in a hole... In the spaceship, they're going to lose their atmosphere and they'll die. And that's basically uh, what the Anunnaki were faced with, is that the ozone leak was losing their atmosphere. But let me ask you, Marshall. Planet Earth, we go around the sun, and we feel the weather changes during the winter, during the summer months, etc. Some countries face it more than others. The closer you are to the equator, the right. more the mild the changes are. Our- our planet is is definitely impacted by the closeness uh, to the sun. Right, it exactly. Penetrates our atmosphere. Now, Nibiru, it has an elliptical orbit, according to Zechariah Sitchin. Right. When it goes far, the change in in temperatures should be incredible, wouldn't it? It is, but not so much as you would think. They have an internal source of heat. In other words, the, just like the core of our planet has, is very hot, has lots of heat, and it comes out in volcanic eruptions every now and then. But they have uh, an atmosphere that is uh, uh, temperature lower than ours. And, and they found the, one of the problems they, uh, Zachariah told me that he translated was that when they got to our surface, they were, they were bothered by the heat. They weren't used to the uh, the temperatures that, that we have adjusted to in our species because they were used to living in a planet that was a lot cooler. But that's things you adjust to, just like uh, Eskimos versus uh, uh, Hawaiians. <laughs> okay, how, how, I understand the weather, the temperature change. How about light or the lack of light as Nibiru is farther from, from the sun? Yes. Well, that's that's the problem that uh, I've tr- I've struggled with, which uh, probably you've asked yourself the same thing, 
And I haven't read anything from Zachariah on my own, figured out how they dealt with that. I know that they they did underground living here, that they built a lot of cave systems under uh, our earth so that they could live in the darkness where they were used to it. I don't know how they did that, but their species obviously was adapted, uh, like many of our species are adapted to uh, living down in the bottom of the ocean without any light. We have we have species that live uh, so, you know way down seven miles down in the ocean. There's no light at all, and uh, those creatures survive. And I'm not a, an expert when it comes to weather. I'm not a geologist, but uh, last year I went to a town close to me in Arizona called Bisbee, and temperatures in the summer, you know, probably about 108, 112. Sometimes mm-hmm. it was one of the hottest days in the summer. So I went there, and they have this mine there. You enter in a train, and not even two minutes after you after you enter the mine, the temperature changes year round to 47 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. So imagine Nibiru going so far, it makes you wonder. Yeah, well, but the atmosphere uh, protects It's like a shield. It protects us. It keeps the heat in. In other words, they generated their heat from internally in the planet, just like we generate heat, and it comes out through volcanic eruptions. And uh, fortunately, we have a balance, and there are species on this planet that have adjusted to the various temperatures. So we know that's possible in a species to adjust to uh, light and temperature. For instance, uh, up in the northern pole regions, there's uh, 24 hours a day of sun, and then there's 24 hours a day of darkness. And some of the Swedish people kind of go nuts when they don't have any sunshine. I've I've read stories about the psychological impact of, of daylight and sunshine. So I think that the species Anunnaki was capable of adjusting uh, to their atmosphere on Nibiru and their sunlight, lack of sunlight on Nibiru. And when they came here, uh, the heat was the thing that seemed to bother them the most. And they lived a lot of times on the ground in these things that we find and can't figure out you know, who the hell dug all that those cave holes down there on these various places. I've been to a lot of archaeological sites where that's underground uh, living. Right looks like. Uh, anyway, that's another story. Uh, it, it makes you wonder. It was uh, Art Bell. I heard Art Bell once uh, say that uh, each planet has its own idiosyncrasies in, for example, planet Earth. Whenever it's too hot, maybe that's why we have the hurricanes in the summer to cool off the planet. And if it's too cold, then the volcanoes uh, erupt. You know, it's a living planet. So the same thing might be happening with uh, Nibiru. I think I think the uh, best description I've heard of Earth was by Carl Sagan. He called it the uh, Goldilocks planet. It was perfect. It was just the right distance away. It had the water and it had the atmosphere, and conditions were very conducive for uh, all sorts of life forms, and particularly the most advanced Homo sapiens adapted to this uh, Goldilocks environment. It's actually a blue dot uh, if you go far enough away from it, it's different than uh, the other planets in our solar system, but because of uh, who we are, what we are, where we are, I think we have to uh, go outside the box, as you said, Mel, and and try to uh, imagine how other civilizations could survive, particularly uh, that great distance from our sun. Um, I, I'm satisfied that the, those species that uh, you know the Anunnaki were very adaptable, very smart, and they were. 
uh, let's say, maybe a million, two million years older than we are as far as their technology and their ability to adapt. Um, uh, evolution has a great truth to it. There's a lot of holes in it, and I, I point those out in my books, but you adapt to whatever you have to adapt to to, to life is tenacious to carry on. You follow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the human the human body is very resilient. And calibrate is the word that I was I was uh, yeah. trying to say. But I saw today in the in the news uh, the headlines reads uh, first love child of human. Neanderthal found the skeletal remains of an individual living in northern Italy 40,000 to 30,000 years ago are believed to be that of a human Neanderthal uh, hybrid, according to a paper. <laughs> it's coming out in pieces. And what I'm trying to do with my work, and particularly with this documentary I'm working on, is to get it on the silver screen around the world so that there is there for anybody who wants to, to go to a theater and get an explanation of where we came from. And I'm going to put, I'm going to lay it all out in that documentary in a way that it's easily understandable. Now, you asked me a few minutes ago about how I got into the gold mining thing, where that idea came from, and I started to explain to you that I was invited by ancient aliens to appear on their program, and uh, they took me to a Hollywood studio and they spent two hours interviewing me. And they, what the subject was, they wanted to connect uh, a place called Chaco Canyon which is in New Mexico, uh, with the Sumerian civilization. They said, can you do that? And I said, sure. As I always say, I had never heard of Chaco Canyon, frankly, Mel. <laughs> but in two weeks, I put together enough research to give them what I felt was a very uh, interesting connection. And it had to do with the position of uh, Chaco Canyon, particularly the Bonita uh, Structure which faced uh, a hillside where a river came, a uh, stream came tumbling down, and there were a bunch of holes on the side facing the stream. And I figured when the spring runoff came, uh, it came from the uh, Colorado Plateau where there was a lot of gold being stripped out of the veins, and it poured through these holes in the wall facing the stream. And as it filtered through these various objects that were built into the uh, pueblo. It's called Pueblo Bonita, and I make picture. I have a lot of pictures of it in my book, The Anunnaki Were Here, and I describe how the gold was, which is gold is 19 times heavier than water. It'll drop out if it hits something and is captured. So I, you know, in my interview for two hours, I told the folks that that's what I thought it was. Well, of course, I got about 10 seconds in that program. It was April of last year. They published my theory, and, and all they said that I said was that the local natives didn't do this. But they avoided what I had discovered. And from that point, I said, you know, what else is there? And one thing led to another. And the washboard theory, uh, which is what we do in, when you uh, take placer water and you try to separate gold out of the placer water, you build a, a rib structure and you put it in a sluice. And then as the water flows over in the sand in it, usually because they, they're digging the stuff out of the riverbed, it separates the gold in the crevices of the washboard. So I said to myself, you know, these iconic structures here in the uh, uh, North American, South American, Central American continent are all step pyramids. And a step pyramid looked to me just like a washboard. And I said, what if, and my, there my mind took off and I went around and I found placer water adjacent to all of these structures. 
And it dawned on me, kind of a light bulb went off, that these were gold separation facilities built by the Anunnaki because it was easier than digging them gold and processing it out of the veins underground, which they'd been doing in Southeast Africa for so long. Anyway, um, that led me to search for other um, iconic uh, structures that uh, archaeologists have uh, attributed to many, many civilizations. And the one that really wowed me, I don't know if you looked on that page where I show Machu Picchu. Of course. And the one where the picture you usually see is this, you know, shot in close in where you see the center of it and the mountain in the background. But if you step away from that, like I did, and I showed the picture on the other page, the thing is all washboard. The entire structure was one gigantic set of washboards. And I know that the river that that circulated around that uh, mountain peak where this uh, structure was built was filled in the springtime with when the spring runoff came with gold that was stripped from the veins of the Peruvian Alps and it rushed around this corner and they just bumped it up, spread it out over these washboards and collected their gold. It was quite easy. Now, the question is, academia continues to say all the time that all these civilizations, let's pick two of them. Let's pick the Egyptians and let's pick the Mayans. Very similar, even in Spanish, the word Egipto and Mexico. Yes. They rhyme three syllables and they have so much in common. At the same time, supposedly they were not connected at all. And it wasn't until Columbus came along that he opened the route for Europe. But do you think that these civilizations were in touch with each other? Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, civilization as we know it, as you and I speak about civilization, let's take the Samarians as an example. Uh, They sprung up out of nowhere. And as Zachariah pointed out so beautifully, that they're still scratching their heads as how they got all the first. All of a sudden, yeah. All of a sudden, boom, out of the caves, here comes a civilization that has... uh, uh, mathematics, it has astronomy, astrology, uh, music, art, religion, and the wheel, all these first. Well, this is, to me, uh, what happens. It's called uh, technology transfer. When an advanced civilization encounters uh, aboriginal civilization, there's several things that always happen in our history. We can look at it and figure it out. And the biggest thing is the transfer of the technology from the advanced civilization to the aboriginal one. And now, I think that you have to look at the species that was here before us, Mel, the uh, Homo erectus. You know, it's a species that evolved, according to Darwin, for over a million, eight hundred thousand years. And the most advanced tool making they got to was stones and spears. And all of a sudden, 200,000 years ago, our species shows up in Southeast Africa, Homo sapiens. And if there was evolution brought us here, there should be some skeletal remains between the Homo erectus species and the Homo sapiens species. And there isn't any. This is the missing link. And uh, that's the struggle that I had. Where did we come from? Where did Homo sapiens come from? Because here, from 200,000 years ago, which is not very long time in, in history of evolution, we're walking on the moon in 1969. So our tool-making accelerated to a point where we were able to leave this planet and go to another sister planet in less than 200,000 years. That just doesn't happen in evolution. It took the Homo erectus a million eight hundred years to get to stone tools and and wooden spears. So you tell me, how'd that happen? 
I usually reserve my opinion because, you know, we, I'm, I'm the interviewer, I'm the journalist, I get out of the way. But I have to say that one common denominator I find between, you know, the Egyptians and some of the other, you know, indigenous tribes around the world is that they say, our people made these monuments. And I think they say that out of pride. They say that out of uh, preservation of their national patrimony. Yes. But what I think really happened here is that probably the because of the all the common denominators between all these monuments all over the world, these massive yes. monuments, is that perhaps one civilization, like let's say the Anunnaki, did it. Then they left, and the ones who stayed behind, they claim that they did it. Do you think that's Inherited it. No. Yes. Um, and each succeeding civilization inherited the same structures and made their own thing about it. And the history in the, that we get from these... Uh, oral histories that come from these groups are that, you know, this guy did this at this time, but that's all, to me, uh, nonsense. Not nonsense, but uh, not practical, not not supportable, not substantiated in any way. But when you look at an advanced civilization like, let's say, the Anunnaki, a million or more years more advanced than we are, who were fantastic stone builders, they built out of what material was here on the earth. And the best material was our, our hard stones like granite. And they carved it magnificently and they formed it and they built things with it that were lasting. And they, I think they were leaving us uh, information built into these structures. You take the pyramids in Egypt, you know, all the mathematical information that comes from the structures that were built there. And, of course, the internal structure of the Great Pyramid has been a mystery which I finally put together at the end of the Anunnaki were here. I put together my analysis of what that was used for, and it, it, I, I'm challenging them to prove me wrong on that. I think it was an internal gold mining operation, and I explain that in great detail at the end of that book and show pictures to how it worked. So uh, I agree with you. Each civilization uh, has a pride of ownership, and, and in fact, if you look at the timelines of the pyramids and the Sphinx, we're now being uh, uh, given the information that they are at least 10,500 years old, according to some water analysis they did on the Sphinx. Well, if that's true, and they were constructed 10,500 years ago, there were no Egyptians at that time. So, you know, that's give right. me a break. But I think they're older. You know, this is this is the new challenge that I've come across. In my research recently, I uh, came across this guy, Allison's... Uh, Retrograde. He went back in time and, and figured where equators were. The Earth, you know, it doesn't keep the same equator over time. Its north-south axis is a pole that rotates around every 26,000 years and changes the equator as it tilts back and forth. So he came up with this equator that I reproduced in uh, the Anunnaki. We're here, my third book. Uh, showing that on the equator, between 120,000 and 84,000 years ago, I took a middle thing, I said 100,000 years ago, the major iconic structures of the, the Great Pyramids, the Easter Island statues, the Nazca Lines, and the Plain of Jars, and I think Atlantis also, were on this equator, exactly. Straight line straight line. And here's the thing. When we go to another planet, when we go to Mars with our lander, we always enter the uh, orbit around the equator because that's where you get the most help in reentry. It kind of is a, a, a drag there 
because it bulges at the equator and it drags the thing down, slows it down, it's enter. So if they were coming from their planet to enter into orbit around our Earth, the equator would be the obvious place that they would focus on uh, coming into. And it, they, the Earth was barren. It didn't have any <laughs> electronic infrastructure to guide them. They made marks on the surface. These were markers or beacons, which would help guide them to the equator position and then find the landing platform from there. It's, it's all. I mean, think, think, think about it. If they're coming here in search for gold and they need it water, if they're flying over the planet, they look at uh, what's now the, the Tigris and the Euphrates and the Nile, and they think, well, this is the equator. Look, we have two great rivers or three. Let's do it there. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting part uh, that Zachariah gave to us is that when they landed, they thought they could get the gold off of the uh, surface of the uh, Persian Gulf, under the Gulf's uh, uh, surface, is where the gold would come. It came down the Tigris Euphrates rivers from Turkey. It was being washed out of the Turkish gold mines, uh, gold veins, and ended up. So they started sucking the material off the floor of the of the Persian Gulf. With their vacuum, their suction hoses, and they brought up gold, but with it they got a bunch of other stuff. They got uh, all kinds of minerals, and it was, you know, the preponderance of the material was not gold. So it was kind of an inefficient way to separate the gold. So that's when they went upstream. They, they went on land, and they started building cities, and they started uh, looking for gold elsewhere, and they found a bunch of it, huge veins of it down in Southeast Africa, and then they started mining it in the traditional sense of digging down into the earth and getting it out and then crushing the rock and processing it and then uh, get melting it down and getting it into bricks and that, that they could ship back on their uh, uh, shuttlecraft to the Nibiru for the saving of that planet. But I started to think about if all these rivers were stripping gold from the veins and it was in the water, it was easier to separate it out of the water than it was to go down and dig it out of the ground and process it because you're getting pure gold. And all you have to do is just make something up like a washboard that would bump it out and then collect it. And bingo, the light bulb went out, went off. Absolutely. In two areas, of course, the Great Pyramid of Giza impresses me, but also Machu Picchu. People think that modern Western civilizations found that hundreds of years ago. But that's not the case. Was it 1911? It's when finally it was discovered. What took him so long to get there, Marshall? Well, it's it's in a really remote location. It's way up in the top. You know, the Andes Mountains are the highest mountains on the planet. Uh, they they uh, top out at around 14,000 feet uh, generally. And so uh, this thing, I think, was built at 12, 12 13,000 feet up in the uh, Andes, and it was hard to get to. In fact, if you've ever been there, it's it's a heck of a hike to get up there, even on trails that have been uh, put in place to uh, get yourself up there. And once they uncovered it, they were trying to figure out, well, you know, who did this and who were the local folks? Now, here's what I found as a commonality in archaeology, that they always credit everything to the local people yeah. who were there at the time and figured and worked backwards from that. For instance, on uh, Stonehenge, it was the tribes on the Salisbury Plain that did it because they were the only ones that were there. They, they, they never thought about a space age, a technological society coming here and doing things. So they had to give credit to the only people they could think about, and those were the local folks. Right. 
And so the Egyptian, the pyramids are now where the Egyptians are. So ergo, the Egyptians did it. And the same thing with Machu Picchu, you know, the Incas. I guess what I'm saying is it took us until 1911 to find out, to discover the area. Yet, it was created hundreds and hundreds years before in a place that's so high that probably trees don't even grow there. And for the purpose, as you say, to pull in mine gold, and there's water coming from there too. Now the question, the variable that I'm still amazed, people, who collected the gold and how? Okay, it was the Anunnaki. My... my sense is that the stairways, every time I go to a structure like that, and I did this last summer when I went to uh, Sicily and discovered the uh, Greek amphitheater, the steps to go up to collect off of the terraces are 12-inch steps, Mel. Yeah, giants. Giant steps. I mean, if you ever climbed, I tried to climb Chichen Itza one time years ago, about 10, 12 years ago. And you can't, I mean, it's, it's, you can struggle. If you go down on all fours, you can crawl up. But coming down, it's so unbalancing, I sat down and bumped my way down. I could not walk down 12-inch steps. I have a video that I'm going to be posting soon. Back in 1992, I believe, I was at the Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico. And it took me probably, what, an hour to climb it, but it took me about three hours to, to go down. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, it's, it's so... Every place I go, that's one of the tests I give. And now at uh, Machu Picchu, there are stairways in between the terraces, and they're 12-inch high stairways. And um, the, what I found most fascinating at the Greek amphitheater, uh, quote, unquote, Greeks built this amphitheater in Sicily. It's made out of a solid limestone hillside. It's perfectly carved. as 450-foot diameter uh, amphitheater, and the terraces have stairways but in order for the greeks to use it they had to build wooden stairways over the 12 inch stairways so there were seven inch wooden stairways in place every place between the aisles so the humans could walk up and down and get to the terraces and i said to myself well if the greek who designed this supposedly designed it wanted people to get up and down he would have given them stairways of seven inch steps so they could do it and they were about five two at the time yeah right exactly even tougher right yeah, I mean, you know, it's to me, uh, every time I go further into this and I, I look for the combination of the water, placer water nearby, and a terrace to uh, washboard the gold out, I say, well, okay, th this is a te technology transfer. They gave us an amphitheater. It was perfect acoustically. There's something else. You know, how did the Greeks figure out the acoustics of that system that was so you could stand on the middle stage and whisper and people up in the top terraces could hear you? That's a, a, a scientific accomplishment that's way beyond the technology of the early Greeks. They inherited this thing, and of course they copied it, and I think why the Anunnaki built it in the form of, a, of an amphitheater, they could have just built terraces like they did at Machu Picchu, you know, which is just terraces, but no, they put it in a circular form, and they said one day you're going to want to do stage productions, and here's the way to do it, because they knew that. So you think that the reason why it was circular was so that when the so-called washboard would bring the water and the gold would actually end up in this center? Well, it ended up on the terraces. No, they, they built lips on the terraces. I point that out in my book, uh, The Anunnaki Were Here. I took pictures of it and I show that, you know, who would sit down with the, the primitive tools that they had to carve into this very hard stone and then on the terraces build a lip 
which means you had to remove a whole bunch of, uh, of stone to make a lip, right? So that's what held the gold, and you just simply it went... It bumped into this. As it came off terracing down the washboard, it would bump into these lips and would stay on the terraces. So they could just walk around the terraces and collect the gold. Now, a couple of points. The steps, as you and I know, you know, climbing the steps is just incredible. It's, it's tiresome for us. And I've seen many pictures of giants. Some people say that they're fake, but I've seen pictures that are not fake. One of our listeners whose father lives in Iran, a few years ago, there was an earthquake there in, in southern Iran, Marshall. And after the earthquake, a city was uncovered and they found the skeletons of women and they were about eight to nine feet tall right now the question the question is were these anunnaki and also if you speak to a scientist they probably would tell you oh male there's a condition called gigantism yeah. you know where we see it these days are these people descendants from the anunnaki i think they're high in other words there was um if you read the story of gilgamesh which i'm fascinated by and so was zachariah by the way we we were going to make a movie together he and i on the story. He was going to write a script and I was going to write a script and we were going to put it together and make a movie out of it. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened yet, but I have, with my wife, written a book called Gilgamesh 10, which is a screenplay of the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it's fascinating, the material that was given to us in transfer technology in that book. And what happened was that the um, the sons of gods, this is from, quoting from Genesis 6-4. You go to your Bible and look at Genesis 6-4. You'll see that it's called the Nephilim were upon the earth in those days. They were the sons of gods, and they coveted the daughters of man and had intercourse with them and created the giants of old, the men of renown. That's a direct quote from uh, Genesis 6-4 in the Bible. So what happened was that the uh, Anunnaki coveted women. You know, They created our species by uh, the uh, cloning process, which is explained also in that book. But they coveted our women, and when they had intercourse with them, they created giants because they were, weren't half-breeds, actually. They were two-thirds breeds. But anyway, they had the DNA of the Anunnaki direct insemination plus the human homo sapien uh, genes. And the result were guys like Atlas, uh, Goliath, uh, Hercules. You go to the Bible and get all these giant people. These were the uh, demigods. And Gilgamesh was one of them. In fact, the only difference between Gilgamesh and, and these other folks was that his mother was an Anunnaki queen, Nisan was her name, and his father was human. So since he was born from an Anunnaki female, he was two-thirds Anunnaki. That's the way the, the thing came about. If you were, uh, if your mother was Anunnaki, then you were two-thirds Anunnaki. And his quest was for immortality. He said, you know, you... Mama, you live forever. Why can't I? And it's a fascinating story. If you've never read it, please, I'll send you a copy of Gilgamesh 10. You'll you'll be delighted with it. My wife and I uh, put that one together, and I think it's it's worthy of making a feature film out of because it tells the story, and it's also got the physical evidence that supports the story. In other words, I put pictures in there of uh, supporting the story of Gilgamesh. When the Anunnaki created Homo sapiens, I'm thinking here out loud, they were the giants, they fell in love with some of our women and procreated. Isn't this where the cesarean, the C-section comes from? Because a woman would not have been able to give birth naturally? That's, very, that's, that's a very good point. But let's, let's uh, go back a little bit first. 
200,000 years ago, the species on our planet that predominated the entire planet were Homo erectus. They looked like us, but they were creature male. They had uh, a third the brain size. They had no vocal cords. They couldn't talk. And they were very primitive with their tools. And the Anunnaki couldn't use them. They were looking for uh, primitive workers, and they couldn't communicate with these guys or tell them anything to do anything because they couldn't understand. They needed an upgrade. Upgrade. So they upgraded. That's what happened. In other words, the they took the egg of the female Homo erectus, they scooped out the nucleus, they put their DNA in it, and they planted it in one of their females. So a female Anunnaki produced Adam from this uh, cloning process. And that's spelled out in uh, Cylinder Seal, which I show in the book, and also in the text that the, uh, the cuneiform tablets describes the whole process. And Zechariah gave it to us by translating and understanding that that's a process we do today. You know, for infertile women, this is how an infertile woman gets a child. The egg is planted in her womb with somebody else's DNA in the, in the um, center of it. So there's nothing uh, strange about that. But what's interesting about it is that that happened 200,000 years ago. And when the humans started to populate, Homo sapiens became, you know, let's, let's come forward in time to about uh, the time of Uruk, which was the capital of Samaria. That was uh, like 4,600 years ago. Okay. So this is very recent time. And uh, these humans were still being attracted. The female humans at that time were, were, were a great attraction to a lot of the Anunnaki males. And those uh, inseminations directly from an Anunnaki male and a human female created these giants uh, like Gilgamesh. And uh, I think it, I find it fascinating that in the lost book of Enki, which I, I strongly encourage anybody that wants a really good, if you can read the text, it's, it's written in, in poetry. You know, one of the things that's fascinated me about the translations that Zachariah did was it was it was written in a strange kind of poetry. Have you read that? Any of those translations? I have not, but wasn't that uh, supposedly extracted from the Bible or excluded from the Bible? Well, there were books, yeah, that were excluded, but not this. This, If you read, there's a... Um, in fact, i got to send you this, Mal, because you're going you're gonna to love it. There's a story called the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is on 12 cuneiform tablets. Each tablet has a story of the search of this giant, you know, rumbling around. He's the king of Uruk. They made him king, and uh, he is a misfit. He's too big for the local folks, and he's not accepted by the Anunnaki because he's not purebred. He's kind of a... Uh, Half-breed. <laughs> two-thirds breed, yeah, okay. And um, he represents, and, and the story tells about he was a troublemaker, and the people petitioned uh, the Anunnaki. Now, the interesting thing to me about the story of Gilgamesh is that it tells a time in history when there was cohabitation between the Anunnaki and humans. Now, as you go back 4,600 years and you read the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I encourage most people that are listening to please do that, and you can find a version of it in our book, Gilgamesh 10, you have something that's never been acknowledged, Mel, by the scientific community. The fact that there was a time in history when humans were living side by side with these flesh and blood uh, individuals called the Anunnaki. Before they became uh, the demigods and the gods, they were called lords at that time. It was Lord Enki, Lord Enlil, and uh, Princess Ishtar. 
So what we have is a, a time frame that you can look into through this story of what happens when they were living side by side in the uh, time frame of 4,600 years ago. So to me, the uh, people petitioned the lords because this guy was rambling around and he was taking the first marital rights of all the brides. Didn't sit very well with the local folks. They got very ticked off at it and they went to the Anunnaki and said, help us. So the Anunnaki, through various uh, sundry stories, created, and it was Enki that did it, out of a wild uh, homo erectus, a clone of the king, an identical clone who was called Enki Do. Mm-hmm. Enki Do was the was the clone of um, of Gilgamesh. Now, Dude, how, hold on for one second. Hold on, for, I don't mean to interrupt you, but as you're speaking, I'm thinking, you know, gr- having grown up a Catholic, I always heard, you know, God created man in His own image. Yeah, this almost seems to be the same thing. And and we we know Arthur C. Clarke's quote: "Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic." And what I'm referring to is. Maybe what this is all about is that instead of of being such a all of a sudden a miracle that we have Jesus coming here, what about if he was a clone yes. of somebody else? Yes, yes, I've come to that just recently. In fact, I sent you a, a little blurb on something I'm working on. Uh, who was Jesus? Anyway, to get back to what I was, the point I was trying to make was that if they could take uh, an, a human, uh, not a human, but an adult. Uh, Homo erectus and, and make him look like the king. In other words, they altered him by uh, some process so that he was the twin of the king. He was twin in strength. He was twin in physical, except his body was hairy, as the uh, Homo erectus was, but his face was a twin. And there's lots of cylinder seals that shows these two, uh, the king Gilgamesh and his twin Enkidu. Uh, so the story is that the people petitioned the Anunnaki to help them get rid of their king. And that's what the story of, of Gilgamesh is. The, the, the Enkidu and the king go off into the woods to take on some monster that was created as a uh, guardian of the uh, the trees that, that surrounded the landing platform. It's a, it's a really fascinating story. And they t- in that story, they talk about the landing platform, and Gilgamesh witnesses the rockets taking off. And I show pictures of the landing platform that is referred to in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I show pictures of the statue of Ishtar. You know, they found a, a life-size statue of this babe in Syria, Myra, Syria, uh, in 1920, I think it was. They, they dug up this life-size statue, and she's wearing a helmet that looks like uh, it's got horns on it. And it's a helmet that is... Uh, called Shugara, which translates from the Samarian into that which goes far into the universe. How about that? <laughs> and so we had somebody made a sculpture of this uh, Princess Ishtar, life-size statue of her. And so this appears in the book because she's a, she's the antagonist of, of Gilgamesh. She, uh, uh, he, re- he refuses to sleep with her, basically. That's what it turns out, the story. And she gets really mad at that. I have to ask you this, and I wonder if this is too off the wall, but bear with me here. You and Sitchin believe that Yahweh, the Hebrew God of creation, was in fact Enlil, and that uh, you also think that Marduk was Allah. Yes. Sometimes I wonder, Marshall, if religion, and I don't mean to say this to offend anybody, please bear with me, religions, languages, different cultures, if they're all put here to keep us separate 
all the time. When you have a civilization that's united in a planet, you are stronger. But when you keep everybody divided and you keep, you know, give them Allah, you give them different types of gods, everybody's going to be in a, an eternal state of war. Do you think they did that on purpose? Mel, you've hit on exactly what I've just come upon. In other words, it's taken me all this time to put it together. Yes, uh, Sitchin and I agreed that the Hebrew God was Yahweh, and we both agreed that Marduk was probably Allah because he was the bad seed. And if you go back to his reign in uh, Babylon, his king was Hammurabi, and he had 128 rules to live by. And if you read the rules and read the penalties that he imposed on the people, and you read the Koran, they're exactly the same. I mean, that's where it started. Anyway, I've tied this together, and I'm going to probably uh, produce something, but what you said is absolutely true. In order to keep us under control, because there were so many more of us than there were of them, the religions, the various religions, were created by the Anunnaki to uh, separate the people and keep them under control. And I... Uh, I don't want to offend anybody like you, and I was not brought up in the Catholic faith, but I've uh, recently tried to figure out who Jesus was, and I've come to some conclusions, which I don't want to talk about right now because I haven't published it yet. But I believe that these leaders each wanted their own following, and that uh, uh, Enlil was the first. He, he was the god of the Hebrews, and he made this covenant, and he was really... A super conservative personality, and he had strict rules. And if you read some of the Ten Commandments, they're pretty strict. And um, he wanted people to follow him only. So uh, after he got that going, and um, they were established as, as one of the primary religions, uh, there was a lot of jealousy amongst the other Anunnaki. They wanted a following too, so they, they went about and created their own religions. And if you go into Hinduism, which is what I'm studying now in the subcontinent of India, there's fascinating connections between Hinduism and Ishtar. And she was given that part of the world, the Indus Valley, when uh, the Samaran civilization collapsed by the evil wind of the radiation fallout. So it's all connecting together for me, Mel, and I'm so delighted that you you said that publicly because I think it needs to be said. I think it's the kind of thing that... When people understand that it's religion that's separating us and causing our problems, that maybe we can overcome that if we, we got to the truth of things. And you're the man that's uh, on, the, on that point on, on bringing the truth forward. And I, I admire you for it, and I, I will support you in every way I can to continue to get the story out. Well, thank you. And I know some of my colleagues also press on this very difficult topic. But when you go to main, the mainstream, and even some alternative, so-called alternative radio outlets, they're afraid to even mention this, Marshall, because it is so, can we say politically incorrect, because they know that, uh, <laughs> no, take it, dangerous. take the United States, yes, it is, and take the United States as an example, 80% of the people, whether they're, some of them are religious or not, believe in God, and they always fear that they're going to be embarrassing or offending somebody and their sponsors are going to take the funding away. But folks, if you're going to be looking for the truth, we just need to look where it is. And when you look at most of the wars in history, they are all the source of the war is religion. My God's better than your God, right? Exactly. I want to point out that the Anunnaki had a God. They had a deity. 
and they called him the, or it the creator of all. Now, what I, that, that says to me is that if they're a million or two million years more advanced than we are, and they still believe in a deity, the creator of the universe, it comes to the question of what are the answers to everything they didn't know. Now, I want to quote to you my professor, Linus Pauling. At my age of 19, I asked him, when I asked uh, Feynman if he believed in UFOs, I got that answer. I asked Linus Pauling, Professor, do you believe in God? And here's the answer he gave me, Mel, and it's printed in my book, uh, Adam, the Missing Link. It said, Clarfelt, our discipline is to explain everything that's going on in the universe back to the beginning, which was the Big Bang. And if you were to ask me what there was a millisecond before the Big Bang, we cannot explain that. If you wish to believe in a God, please do, because we don't know what there was just before the universe was created. I think that's a marvelous, marvelous answer. And I published it in my book, Adam the Missing Link, by Linus Pauling, who, by the way, was the only human being, only human ever to receive two Nobel Prizes by himself solely, not in joint with anybody else. His first one was for chemistry, and his second one, Mel, was very prophetic. He went around the world uh, just after World War II in the 50s, and he convinced the United States and Russia, through much, much uh, effort, to quit testing our atomic weapons in the atmosphere, he said, because the radiation fallout from the atomic testing in the atmosphere was going to destroy our DNA and destroy us as a civilization. He received the Nobel Peace Prize when the United States and Russia agreed to underground testing of our bombs. Okay, so we're going full circle now. The war that was caused in 4,000 years ago by the Anunnaki in the Sinai Desert, which was an atomic war, the radiation fallout destroyed their golden city on the hill. In other words, Sumar was their kind of uh, Camelot, was their uh, their prized possession, and they called it Eden, E-D-I-N. And they destroyed it by their mistake. And I say to myself, you know, there's a story there, there's a lesson there. Linus Pauling saved us and got a Nobel Prize for it, but now we've got to save ourselves because we're heading in that same direction. It's very, very precarious right now. We can totally annihilate our civilization if we have a third world war and it's atomic. That's the end of it. Absolutely. And I always wondered, and I discussed this again with Zechariah, I said the Old Testament talks about people living over a thousand years. And then as you progress to the New Testament, then we're talking about over a hundred years. And now the lifespan, some people think that we're getting better, but I think it's because this is this is an unrelated topic, but I think it's because big pharma keeps the quantity of life, produces the quality of life, and that's why we think we'll live longer, but we, we don't. But anyway, lifespan has been shortened. And I think, and Sakurai, I believe, agreed that was it was because of all these nuclear explosives around the planet, and that's why we seem to live less and less. Well, the, the, the fallout from the uh, uh, atomic radiation, from the testing of the bomb, was destructive. It got into the cow's milk. It caused all kinds of problems with newborn babies. Yes. Radiation is, is a terrible, I mean, it's, it's something we can't, uh, defend ourselves against, particularly if it's coming down and raining down on us from the atmosphere. So to me, uh, I've I put together a scenario that uh, if the Anunnaki had a, a deity called the creator of all, 
and that they were the fathers of our religions. But in reality, the their religion was one God. We all should, you know, kind of clean up our act and recognize that there is a creator of all, but it isn't these separate gods that are causing all these wars. These deities were created by the Anunnaki. I think that's that's a lesson that we have to get out. And I'm I'm delighted that you're you're on this point on this subject because it's my passion at my time in life right now is to make a story that's understandable to the masses of people on this planet and to let them understand that where their religions came from is okay because the creators of their religions had a God and his God was the creator of all and we all are beholden to the single creator but not to these many, many gods that uh, are causing all this problem. And Marshall, we have to take our one and only intermission but let me just say this, that you know, growing up, I always thought of the statement, thou shall not kill. At the same time, we had the crusade, we had the inquisition, we have all that in history where millions of people died because of religion, which didn't make any sense to me. And now I see it more as a control mechanism to keep population under control. But um, when we come back, I want to continue discussing the gold aspect, the washboard aspect. One thing I always wondered about the pyramids is that there's water erosion. I want to know from you if this is something that we hear about because it's because it rained in the area of the world or because water was used right. in, in, in the pyramid to extract the gold. But tell us how to get in touch with your work and buy your books. Uh, I have a webpage www.adamthemissinglink.com. It's the title of the first book, A-D-A-M, themissinglink.com. All three books are on that page, and uh, they're published uh, all over the world. Uh, but the best place to get them at the best price, and uh, I have a special on right now. If you buy all three of them, at the bottom of that page, there's a special price for all three books. It's You'll see it as a, what do you call those things? You push a button on it. <laughs> I'm not used to all this technology yet, but... It's a bar that you touch, and you'll get a special on the on the three books if you want the whole series. It's called the Clarfield, and I autographed those three. So that's where you can get it, www.adamthemissinglink.com. And thank you so much for mentioning that, Mel. Absolutely, and we have links on our website. And when we come back also, I want to discuss some of the most fascinating monuments in my mind, Baalbek in Lebanon, uh, Machu Picchu, Pumapunku in South America, all of this that has so much that we don't know, especially those rocks that look like jigsaw puzzle, yeah. and we still cannot figure them out. When we come back, I'm here with Marshall Klarfeld. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the members section. Enjoy.
This is a Karasichin, and you are listening to a wonderful radio interview conducted by Mel. Mm-hmm. 